So we've been at this for a while. We are taking the next number of weeks and laying out why Christmas is so important. We're walking through scripture and highlighting different things. And just so you know, as I work on different parts of this series, I get smarter and I put points together. I'm like, oh, I should have said that. But this is why we do a review at the beginning, because I get to share with you everything I figure out as, you know, I get smarter. Uh, so the first week we talked about Adam and Eve and how they were given every advantage. They were God's representation to creation, that the animals and everything would see man and woman and see God and see the authority and see the creativity. And scripture tells us that it was through one man, through the actions of one couple, that sin entered the world, but it was through the better man that salvation has come to the world. And the point of us looking back and seeing Adam and Eve, what they did was to set the stage for the fact that we needed something better. We needed a different, better prototype. We needed a better example. And in the same way that Adam brought sin into the world, Jesus, through all that he did and his sacrifice, he brings salvation to the world. Last week we looked at the laws. And the laws were good. The laws were set to set, draw that line in the sand of where God's ways and where where God's ways stopped and sin began. And if we did God's ways, there's going to be blessing and God's going to look out for us and there's going to be health. And, and what the law did was give us all the do's and don'ts of life, right? If you want to be blessed, if you want to be holy, if you want to be God's chosen people, you're going to act this way. And if you don't act this way, you're going to cross over into sin's way and there's going to be a curse, not a curse from God, but you're going to invite a curse on yourself and open yourself up to enemies and open yourself up to sickness and open yourself up to all kinds of... And what we learned was that the law is, was not enough because we got, what the people did is they got caught up in trying to go through the motions and do all the right things and stay away from all the wrong things. And all it ended up doing was creating this system of legalism that actually pulled them farther and farther away from God. And so we needed something better than the law. Not that the law is bad. The scripture tells us very clearly that the law is good and it's useful for building up, but we needed something. It, w it had to be something that we didn't do. It had to be something someone else did for us. And again, this is where we need Christ. We needed God to step in that your salvation isn't based on how you live because you're going to drop the ball. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to make mistakes. So instead of it being relying on who we are and what we can do, it's dependent on who God is and what he has already done for us. You are saved by no other way than declaring that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and believing in your heart that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. That's it. You just need to declare and believe. And if you declare and believe, you are saved and you are continually being saved. It is the Spirit that is working out your salvation day in Stay out. And this morning, we're, as we're going through the stages of Israel's story, it started with Adam and Eve. It went to the law. This morning, we're going to look at this era of God's chosen people, of the judges and the kings. So to set the stage, Joshua has taken over from Moses. They've gone in the promised land. They've started conquering the promised land. And Joshua has now gotten older. He's starting to pass away, and he recognizes it, and he's called the people together. And this is where we ended off last week, saying, he's standing before the people saying, you have the choice today. As I am no longer able to lead you, and as you go to your allotments of the country, and you get rid of the rest of the enemies, and you claim the land for yourself, you today are to choose between life 
and death. But as for me and my family, we're going to choose life. We're going to follow God all the days of our lives. And so Joshua ends and Judges picks up in chapter 2. And we're starting in verse 10. And this is what we read. And this is going to set the stage for all of Judges. You, read, you just need to read this portion of Scripture and you already know how Judges is going to go. And it's not good. Starting in verse 10. After that generation died, so Joshua's generation, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. That wording, did evil in the Lord's sight, is going to come up a lot in the kings and the judges era of Israel. But they did evil, they served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtaroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around. And they were no longer able to resist them. This is part of what God said, you turn your back on me. When enemies come, you're not going to be able to resist them. So it's just a fulfillment of what he already told them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. The people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods, how quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in the obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by the oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. And they went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. <clears throat> so it says that the people, Joshua's generation dies, and, and they, didn't, they obviously didn't raise up the next generation very well, because as soon as they died, they turned away from the teachings of the Lord. And that's maybe the first thing to draw out is as parents and as grandparents and as the, the generation that's quote-unquote, the ruling generation. How are you raising up the next? How are you instilling in them the values of Scripture and the values of the church and the values of, of, of just a Christian life? Because if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And one of the deceptions that we've believed is that, well, as long as I go to church, the church is going to do it. We don't have enough time. We, we get like two or three hours a week. They're with you all the time. At the end of the day, we're going to raise up the next generation to be faithful and experience the blessing that God wants them to live. It's going to come down to the parents and the grandparents. And the, but it, it's the whole church community. It's, it's having those connections outside of Sunday morning and going for meals together and doing life together so that it's not always coming from one voice. It's having lots of voices instilling these good virtues and these good ideals so that our it gets into the hearts and the minds of our kids. And as they grow up, they just step into it knowing that this is the better way. This is why the community is so important. This is why it's so important to be intentional with the time that we have. Because the one thing I've heard over and over again is that you blink and it's over. 
you blink and the kids are growing up they're out of the house having their own kids and it's like where did the time go even in those long moments where it's just like would you grow up already and then it's like ah stay children we're having that right now with with levi right he was like where'd the baby go I ran into someone who hadn't seen him in a while. Like, he wasn't even born the last time I ran into this person. And they're like, how old is he? I joke. I was like, he's six months. Look how big he is. But, like, <laughs> but he's not even two. The little turkey. Anyways, they grow up so fast. And <laughs> it's so easy to miss out on the opportunities that God has given us. So the next generation rises up, and they are not they fall away and God disciplines the people. This is, how, this is the way we need to understand this, is that people fall away, they step into this curse, right, that, that God warned them about. And then enemies would come and the raiders would come and they would, the, their help was gone. And so they were defeated and they'd be ruled over by stronger nations and, and they would cry out. And the way it was explained to me when I was in Bible school, hopefully this works, so let's say like this is where Joshua was. Joshua. Such good writing, hey? Good thing I wasn't a teacher. Um, there's Joshua. And it says that the next, his generation dies and the next generation starts to sin. So, so they fall. And then they get tired of being oppressed. They get tired of the, the hardships. And so they cry out to God and they say, God, save us. And God rises up a judge. And, and they come back, but they don't quite get back to where they were. They, they've fallen so far that they never actually get back fully committed. And, and, and they do good for a little while, and the judge dies, and they turn away, and it says that they do even worse, and so they fall even further. And, and the oppression comes, and the hardship comes, and they cry out, and God answers them and raises up another judge because he loves them and he wants them to succeed, but they never get back to where they once were. And as long as the judge lives, they're kind of faithful, they're, they're, they're better than they were, and then the judge dies again, and they drop even further, and soon enough, they just keep dropping and dropping until they're not even getting back to where they started. And we see it with the way that the judges, um, we see it with the quality of the judges. We look at, so by example, we, I'll, I'll pick on the two big judges that we probably think of when we think of the judges of Israel. The first one is Gideon. By the time Gideon comes along, he's the fifth judge of Israel. There's four have come before him. And what do we know about Gideon? He's hiding in a corner. He's afraid because the Philistines have come and they've conquered and they're taking away fields and they're taking away livestock. And instead of being a bold warrior like you'd think of a judge, he's hiding in a corner. But God comes and he talks to Gideon. And the rest of Gideon's story is God and Gideon having these conversations. And God making these crazy requests to say, just live on faith. You're Army of 30,000, you're taking against that army of 120,000 is too big. You need to knock it down to 300. But trust me, you're going to have victory. And sure enough, Gideon does. And Gideon is, is a good example of a strong leader. He's a good example of what it means to have a relationship with God. Because there's this back and forth between them. And he's righteous. And he, he leads well. But even near the end of Gideon's life, they're like, well, raise up your son to take over as a judge. And Gideon's like, no. My son is bad news. Well, whose fault is that, Gideon? 
if it's bad news, do something about it. But he's not. He's just like, no, no, you guys should just put up with me till, till it's done. And then Gideon dies, and we get this whole circle back again until we get to the end of Judges, and we get to the 12th judge of Israel. You know who the 12th judge of Israel is? He's kind of famous. Hit, here's a hit. He couldn't cut his hair. Samson. Samson is the farthest thing from a righteous person. In fact, Samson is so unbelievably selfish. And God in his wisdom and his strength and his foresight can use somebody like Samson who is selfish and just all right, all out evil. Right? He's sleeping with prostitutes. That's not exactly what you look for for good Christian mentors. He's murdering people left, right, and center. He's stealing clothes from people. Like he's just, but he's doing it all to the Philistines. And this is how God, dis- God um, defeats the Philistines is through Samson's selfishness. He wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies because of a vow that his mom had made on his behalf. But he's touching dead bodies. All- he's making people dead. Like he's, you've got to touch it. Anyways, he's breaking all kinds of laws. And the only interaction Samson ever has with God is, he is his hair has been cut. God has taken his strength away from him. And he's, being, he's in the temple of the Philistine gods. His eyes have been plucked out. He's blind. He's a sideshow. But his hair started to come back. And his one conversation he has with God is he says, God, just give me my strength back for one last act. And God returns his strength, and he knocks down the Philistine temple, and he says he kills more Philistines in that one act than he did in his entire life. And the man was, anyways, he went on a rampage. But in that one moment, and Israel experienced freedom, but now the judge is dead. And we think, oh, they're going to fall back again. But they don't, because in the, right alongside Samson, running around, causing his mess, doing his thing, God is raising up another judge, another judge of Israel, and by, the man, by a, na- a man by the name of Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet of God who hears God speak, who is the epitome of righteousness and leads the nation well. <coughs> and the Israelites come to Samuel and say, Samuel, we're done with these judges. We want a king. We want a king like the other nations. Samuel is hesitant. He's like, no, because God is your king. You don't need a human king. You already have a better king. But God comes along and says, Samuel, don't worry about it. I'll deal with it. Give them what they want. But it's not really give them what they want because what they want is they want someone who is rich and prestigious and a mighty warrior who's going to lead the armies and live in big castles. But God has actually given instruction about how how the kings of Israel were supposed to live. In Deuteronomy, it talks about you are about to enter the land the Lord is giving you. When you take, over, take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. Oh, it's like they were reading the word. They took it right out of God's law. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must not appoint a fellow you must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Okay, so number one, he's got to be an Israelite. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. 
Okay, so he can't have this huge fleet of horses under his command. The king must not take many wives for himself. If any of you know scriptures, there's a guy that comes after David. You're like, wait a second. He had a lot of Anyways. Why? Because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. So he can't have a lot of wives. He's not supposed to be filthy rich. When you think of royalty, what do you think of? Wearing gold on their robes and golden crowns and golden scepters and gold everywhere. The palace is lined with gold, but God says, no, 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 he's not supposed to be extremely wealthy. Why? Because he's supposed to be one of the people. He's not supposed to elevate himself to this place of grandeur. He's actually just supposed to be one of the people. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. It will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So when Israel says we want a king, they're thinking of the kings of the other nations, right? Big palaces, lots of horses, lots of women, lots of, lots of, lots of everything that the world values. And God says, no, 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 your king is supposed to be different. Your king is supposed to be humble. He's supposed to be one of the people. He's not supposed to have a big house. and lot. He's just supposed to be a simple man, but he is set apart because he's been appointed by God, and he reads the word daily, and he can lead well because of everything that he's drawing out of this and it's not a coincidence that when we think about a king who is humble and one of the people who doesn't have extravagant amount of things we think of one man because jesus is a better king jesus understood what it meant to be king of israel it didn't mean being a conquering king like the jews were hoping right when when jesus is ascending into heaven and he's about to he's giving the disciples the final instruction the apostles are like when are you going to conquer rome when are you going to establish Israel as the powerhouse that we, we all imagine it to be? And God's, and Jesus is like, I'm not. Because it's not about this kingdom, it's about the heavenly kingdom. And that's why the Pharisees had such a tough time with him. They wanted him to be this commander of an army, and he came as a suffering servant. And as we read through the kings, so we get... We get Saul. Saul's bad king. Let's just put it the way it is. Saul's bad king. David comes. David is a man after his own heart. He makes mistakes. There's no secret. You read through the story of David. You know, he's, he's not the perfect person, but he loves God. He has all these conversations, and he's, he's written a large number of the Psalms as worship. I'm like, God, you're so good, and I trust you completely to be everything I need you to be. His son Solomon rises up, and he's considered the wisest king of all, which is really ironic because he breaks every one of the rules we just told you about a king was supposed to follow. He, he built his mansion, his palace to be bigger than the temple. He accumulated a large number of horses. We, you know, his wives were innumerable and his concubines were even more. Like we're talking hundreds. Like he, he's supposed to be so wise. But he broke, and, and he begins the downward spiral of the kings of Israel. His son 
It leads to the division of the nation. Now we have a northern kingdom known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. And we read through the kings, and we don't get a lot of details of a lot of the kings, but there's a grading system that each of them receives. It starts off by, this is the king, he is the son of so-and-so, he reigned for so long, and he did one of two things. He either did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the nation followed him into it, or he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But the spiral continues, down and down it goes. And eventually Israel gets, Israel, the northern kingdom, doesn't have any good kings. There's no kings in the northern nation that say, that get the grade, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They just do evil, evil, evil. And in 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes in and takes the northern kingdom into slavery, into exile, and they're gone. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer. Every once in a while, they have a good king who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But even when the good kings come, it follows the same model as, as the judges. The first one comes, and he's good. He removes all of the idols. He removes all the high places, it says. And he establishes God as the God of Israel. And then his son comes and does evil. And his son comes and does evil. And then the next good king comes. And all of a sudden, it stops saying he's removing the idols. It stopped saying he was removing the high places. He's a good king, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but all of a sudden he's kind of tolerating the other gods. And he's tolerating the other priests, and he's not going to the extent that the guys before him went. And down and down it goes. Even the good kings aren't really as good as they could be. And in 586, the Babylonian Empire has now conquered the Assyrians. They are now the superpower of the time. They march into Jerusalem. They march into Judah. And they take everybody and into exile. They go. And you might be thinking exile seems like a pretty extreme consequence for not following and not obeying the Lord. But God told them this was going to happen. Nothing in the Old Testament happens that God didn't warn Israel would happen. Back to Deuteronomy, it says in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will exile you and your king to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. There in exile, you will worship gods of wood and stone. You will become an object of horror, ridicule, and mockery among all the nations to which the Lord sends you. And so now the whole nation, God's chosen people, are now in exile, suffering the consequences of turning away from their God. And so how does this apply to us? How does this set up for Christmas? When we read through the story of Israel, Paul tells us that when we read the Old Testament, we are supposed to put ourselves into the story. But we don't get to be the prophet, and we don't get to be the king, and we don't get to be David, we don't get to be the good person in the story. We are Israel Israel is our story. And before Christ, when we, would, we were so caught up in sin, before we gave our life to Jesus and followed him and declared him as our Lord, we were so caught up in sin that even when we did good things, even when we tried to conquer sin and get our lives straight, we would never quite get to the height. The one word they talked about for the kings and judges is that they would redeem Israel, but it's only a partial redemption. Because they couldn't do it. Man can't do what only God can do. So we were, in, we were in desperate need of a better judge. 
We were in desperate need of a better king because when, the judge, when Israel fell, the judges could only kind of pick them up. When we fall as believers, trusting God, allowing him to pick, he's not expecting us to be perfect. But Jesus in his wisdom and his power and his love has the ability to, when we fall, not only does he pick us up and get us back to where we were, he actually has the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the ability to lift us higher. To use the things that are wrong in our life to make us stronger, to refine us. And so it's a, it's a better system. It's a better deal. That the Old Testament, you fell, you never quite got back to where you started. Under Jesus, when you fall, Jesus picks you up and he picks you up higher. Because God, Jesus is a better redeemer. He's a better king. He's a better judge. He's more righteous than those that came before him. And as the people are going into exile, they're like, the system's not working. No, no kidding. You're not even at your homes anymore. We need something better. And we, as the people of God, as the church of the New Testament, because we're still technically the New Testament church, we have the better. And his name is Jesus, whose grace is new every morning, whose mercies get poured out fresh every time we ask, who never ceases to forgive, who never ceases to wash us clean. There's nothing so bad that God would distance himself from you. In fact, the worse you get, the more he's willing to just scoop in, pick you up, get you better. And his redemption, back to the law, it's not we do good things so that we are saved. Now we live in a time that because you are saved, because of the good things that Jesus has accomplished for you, you live better lives. It's not on your strength. I just had this conversation recently. Guys, laying out um, the high standard that Jesus has set for us. And, and in this particular case, talking about husbands. As husbands, we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And he's like, that's impossible. I know. Because you're not supposed to do it on your own. Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit to be our wisdom and our source to help us do the impossible. He didn't like that. I don't like that either. But that's the truth. It's too much. Yeah, it is too much. But that's why we have the Spirit resting within us to not only pick us up, but to make us better. Day by day, sanctifying, rejuvenating, redeeming, making us into the men and women that God has called us to be, to do what God has called us to do. And with that, I'm going to pray. Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus, I thank you that you are the better king. I thank you that you are the better judge. And God, I thank you for the Old Testament that we can look back and we can see how you work and how you move and how God, I invite you into this place. I invite you into each and every one of our hearts, whether in-house or online. And in red verse, God, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear, hearts to know that you are the good God who moves in us. And God, I thank you. I thank you for that truth that when we are striving and trying to be the best that we can be, and even when we fall, your spirit comes and picks us up and makes us stronger, refines us even more. 
God, may our salvation, may our assurance that comes from you and you alone give us the strength to be all that you've called us to be. I thank you, Jesus, that you are better. And as we set the stage, we look more and more towards Christmas when we celebrate you coming as a baby. Give you all our praise and thanks, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.